could turn in a Bible, if you have one, to Psalm 19. Text is printed in a bulletin, and there are, I think, a couple Bibles on the table in the back if you need one. Psalm 19. Uh, One of these days, maybe I'll stop apologizing for quoting C.S. Lewis so much. Not that I'll stop quoting him so much, stop apologizing for (laughs) quoting him so much. I'm actually kind of surprised that uh, I haven't been called into an intervention or something on that um, yet. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he has a book uh, called Reflection on the Psalms, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. And he says uh, that that this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 19, is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's a pretty big deal, I think, so I thought you'd just like to know that he thought it was really good. Uh, What we see in David's poetry in Psalm 19, uh, first and foremost, primarily, is God's revelation of himself. God's revelation of himself and our response to his revelation. It's a super brief introduction before we read the scripture. It's, It's beautiful and it's unsettling. So let's hear it and let's make it our prayer. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you have made yourself known so we could have a relationship with you. We pray that you'd make us the kind of people who'd be interested in that, that you'd grant us faith, uh, repentance, hope in you, love for you, trust in you. As we read your word, we pray that you would uh, let us know you better. Um, This is a work that only you can do through your spirit, working in our minds to transform them in our hearts, to renew them. So we pray for that that work, your spirit's work right now. Uh, We need your help as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, it's probably a familiar psalm uh, to most of us in the room. I think it's it's easy to approach this psalm and uh, just think that the first part is beautiful. It's this grand ode to the heavens or ode to the sun. And uh, the second part sounds nice, really nice language anyway, uh, but maybe a a bit unfamiliar uh, sentiment about God's law, loving it so much and praising it so much. That might be a little bit foreign to us. Sounds great, but maybe foreign. Third part uh, probably seems entirely like a non sequitur, like uh, not sure how it follows the first and the second part, not sure how actually all of this sort of works together, but... uh, um, But it all does tie together. It all does tie together. And there is sort of an argument, uh, if you will, running through it. Uh, The the psalm really, very basically, it assumes that a change needs to take place in us. It assumes that a change needs to take place in us. When you you approach the psalm, I think uh, you sense that uh, you're out of step with it in some sense, Some change needs to take place in you, and this psalm indicates the need for a change in our response to God's revelation of himself. So God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. He's the kind of God who does that. He wants to be known. He wants to have a relationship with us, and so he's revealed himself, and he's done so in two ways, primarily. It's brought out in this psalm. He's done so through the world that he's made. You see that in the first part. And he's revealed himself in the words that he's spoken. That's the second part. And that's the main significance of the first two parts of Psalm 19. He's revealed himself. And so the heavens declare something, says in verse 1. The sky preaches something. Day to day pours out speech. It's a nonverbal speech. You know, speech in quotes. Pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So what God has created, that's what the psalmist is saying, what David is saying, what God has created says something about him as creator. Paul writes that in the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 1. He says that God's invisible attributes, like you can't know God, uh, you can't reason your way to God, you can't know what he's like intuitively necessarily, but but uh, his invisible attributes, those things that you can't just see about him, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. All the things that God has made say something about him, namely his eternal power and divine nature, according to Romans 1, or his glory, according to Psalm 19, verse 1. His creation says something about his glory. I think David is bringing out something very specific here. He's going to talk about all creation, right? He singles out this, these aspects of creation, his talk of the sky, his talk of the sun in particular. And so if you go back to Genesis 1, where there's a lot of this, this language shows up the first time in the Scriptures, in Genesis 1, you have God's explicit interpretation of creation. It's a poetic interpretation of creation, right? Uh, Genesis 1 is not primarily a series of scientific statements about the beginning of the world and the origin of every single thing that you can imagine. It doesn't describe all of it. 
but it's a well-crafted sort of a storytelling account with theological purposes and spiritual purposes. God's trying to communicate something. He's trying to interpret his creation for us, and it happens to come across a bit poetically. And so one big obvious thing going on in Genesis 1 um, is that God first creates realms, arenas for relationship, really, uh, arenas for, for, for his creatures to dwell in and to, to know him in. He first creates these realms, and then he populates those realms, uh, especially with rulers, rulers, creatures to, to rule these realms that he's created. And so <clears throat> on the second day, he creates the heavens or the sky, it says. <clears throat> and then on the corresponding fourth day, he creates the lights that are in the skies. And importantly for us, looking at Psalm 19, he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars in Genesis 1, but here uh, especially, he's uh, the, the great light, the sun. And God says he created the sun to rule the day, to give light on the earth, to separate light from darkness, to, to have a day and a night. And so God is beginning to interpret his creation for us back there in Genesis 1. <clears throat> he's helping us to understand what it says about him. That's the important thing about it, is that it says something about him. And that's what David picks up on with his poetry here in Psalm 19. These things say something about their maker, the realm of the sky, and the sun as its ruler. It says something about God. God has set up a celestial pavilion in the sky, if you will, a tent. And we know that the sun doesn't dwell underneath the big blue curtain, right? <clears throat> it's poetic. He set up this celestial pavilion in the sky as a dwelling place for the sun who strides forth each day, a kingly bridegroom beaming with joyful purpose, fulfilling his God-given role with gusto and in perfect order. And uh, Eugene Peterson's um, uh, message says of these verses, he says, the morning sun is a new husband leaping from his honeymoon bed, the daybreaking sun, an athlete racing to the tape. <clears throat> this poetic language. If we're going to be more scientific, which maybe some of us appreciate more than poetry, maybe a bit easier to understand sometimes, uh, we might point out that the sun is racing, hurtling through the galaxy at 490,000 miles per hour, uh, relative to the galaxy anyway. The sun is dominating the earth and all the planets, dominating and drawing them along with it. They're caught up in its glory, so to speak. <clears throat> the sun is flooding the entire solar system with light and heat almost instantaneously. This, this great, vast solar system receives light and heat from the sun. The sun is bursting with fusion energy. Every second, it's converting four million tons of matter into energy. Every second. It's been doing that for how long? And it's going to do that for how long? It's the very picture of boundless, unfaltering power. The sun is. And it says something about the glory of God. <clears throat> to all people everywhere, the voice, the nonverbal voice, communication, it's constant, according to this psalm. It's supralinguistic doesn't depend on you being able to hear certain words or not. 
and understand them. It's universal. It goes out through all the world, the ends of the earth. The voice that's proclaiming something about the glory of God. And that voice, when you look at the heavens, when you look at the sun, these things that God has made that say something about their creator, it isn't just saying, God made me, duh. Something for you to talk about with your atheist friends. Obviously, these things have a maker. It's not just saying that. It isn't just saying uh, something, you know, you can look at the sunrise, you look at the sunset, and you could say, ooh, look at all the pretty colors God uses. He's very creative. True. Amazing colors. Captivating colors. It's almost like the heavens and the sun are begging the question, what kind of God made me? What kind of God made me? That's the real question. That's what it's really, that's a great question to ask. What kind of God made that? It's saying, God made me because he must be royal. He must be robust and purposeful because he is beaming with playful splendor. He is the source of tireless abundance, the one who has, always has more to give. He is the very definition of faithful constancy, the one who never grows bored with his labor of service, his life-giving labor of service. He is the true light. Nothing on earth is hidden from his searching gaze. He is the great ruler of heaven and earth, giving life to all. He's the kind of God who brings order out of chaos, who creates this dwelling place, and then makes his greatest creation, ultimately, humanity. See that in Genesis 1 makes his greatest creation. It's a creation that must be even greater than the sun, moon, and stars. It's the pinnacle of God's creation, created in his own image, like nothing else is, to rule at his side with his own dominion in his own glory forever. That's what kind of God made the heavens and the sun. That kind of God prepares the sky as a realm for its ruler, the sun, to give not just... The sun as a, a source of light and life and joy to the whole world, but to give the sun as a universal picture of his intentions for relationship with humanity. To bless humanity. To be with humanity. That's the glory that the heavens reveal about him, and clearly you're going to have a problem with that if you distrust or reject God's word. Clearly you're going to have a problem with that if you distrust or reject God's word that interprets creation this way, that, that sees creation and hears creation saying things about its creator like that. Paul says uh, all of this is plain for us to see. It really is true. There really is that relationship between God and the things that he's made. Uh, it is declaring his glory like that. He says it's plain for us to see, Paul does, but, but we reject it. That's what he says. That's what the scriptures say everywhere. We reject it. We've stopped our ears. We don't have the response to God's revelation that we should. That response will be even more clear when you consider God's law. The next part, uh, sort of the, the really painfully acute revelation of God. As he writes this psalm, David shows us what the good response to God's law is. It's this celebration, it's this praise. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and so on. So C.S. Lewis said, one, one can well understand this being said of God's mercies, but what the poet is actually talking about is God's law. Just think of the Ten Commandments, all those restrictions. Think of all the scriptures, all the laws compelling you to live this way and not that way. To override your own conscience in a lot of places, your own preferences, your own sensitivities. To override that and and give you commands. This is the divine command. This is God's law. Maybe it's an odd thing for you to think, to, to be able to say, I just love it when God tells me what to do. I love it. Kids, do you love it when your parents lay down the law for you in your houses? Do you love it when people tell you what to do? The answer should be easy. Does anyone love being told how to live their lives? How fast or slow to drive their car? Can you really praise God for his law? Can you praise God for his law? Is it perfect? Does it revive the soul? Now, we could say here that the the Hebrew word for law, which is Torah, it doesn't strictly have to mean law like commandment, like rule, like God's telling you to do this or not do that. It doesn't have to be limited to that. That is a pretty uh, uh, small, um, uh, strict interpretation of that word. It can refer refer to the first five books of the Bible. Five books of Moses, that's called the Torah. There's plenty in there that's not just God telling people what to do. It could refer to that, or it could mean something even more general, like teaching or instruction. It could refer to all the scriptures, everything we have from, from God's mouth, so to speak. It's true. It could mean those things. Most broadly, the verse could be saying, the word of the Lord is perfect. The revelation of the Lord. What he has said is perfect, reviving the soul. I don't think you're going to avoid much with that translation since the psalm goes on to celebrate the commandments and the rules and the precepts. Anyway, very specifically. Clearly, David does think that it is good to say in this section of the psalm, I just love it when God tells me what to do. I love it. Can you imagine that? Why would someone say that? I mean, it isn't just because David's impressed with himself as a good moral person. I just love it when I know the right thing to do so that I can do it because I'm good. And I like to impress myself and others with that. But that's maybe a temptation for proud people, maybe people like us. I really love the law because it helps me feel good about myself. I can't stand it when I feel bad about myself. If I could feel good about myself and do something right, that'd be better. Let's do that. Why would someone write such lavish poetry celebrating God's law? You do get the picture in this section that David is concerned with the fullness of God's revelation. He does use several different words here, like law or instruction as it may be. Testimony. Testimony, the things God has testified to, the truth of his grace, the truth of his mercies, the truth of his work and his promises. 
things that God himself bears witness to, the, the precepts, the commandments, etc. It's the, it's the full picture of all God's rev, uh, revelation. Everything God says is perfect. Everything that God says is sure and right and pure and clean and true. Everything he says is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. C.S. Lewis picks up some more imagery. He says that it's like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. It's like mountain water. It's like fresh air after a dungeon. It's like sanity after a nightmare. Everything God says is like that. Everything God says, including when he tells me what to do, when he tells me what to worship, who to worship, how to worship, when he tells me what to say, when he tells me how to relate to other people, when he tells me what to think, when he tells me what to feel. All of this is wonderful. And it's wonderful because all of it says something about him. That's why it's wonderful. Because all of it reveals something about him so that we can know him. So that we can know what he's like. So that we can have a relationship with him. It's just like with the first part, with the sky and the sun. God's law and everything he says, God's law begs the question, what kind of God declared me? What kind of God commands you to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? To love your neighbor as yourself. What kind of God does that? That's a great question to ask. The primary significance of the law, just as the primary significance for his interpretation of creation, for the psalmist, the primary significance is that it reveals God. God has made himself known through his works, through the world that he's made, and through his words. And that's the key. Can you say that nothing thrills you more, that nothing is more precious to you, nothing is more desirable, nothing sweeter, that only God's revelation of himself revives your soul, only God's revelation of himself makes you wise, that it rejoices your heart, that it enlightens your eyes. That's the good response. That's the right response. That's the only right response to God's revelation. We have it right there in the psalm. But the psalm assumes that this is, this is not usually our response. This is not always our response, at least. We're the types to distrust and reject God's revelation. That's clear through all the scriptures. That's what kind of people we are. That's right at the root of all of our sin. The psalm goes right on from there to acknowledge our sin, which is a problem with our response to God's revelation of, of himself, our response to God himself, and the relationship that's been extended to us from him. Our response to that is a sinful one, and the psalm goes on to acknowledge that we need forgiveness. It acknowledges our need for change. Our prayer 
is that we would have a different response to God's revelation of himself. That's what this psalm goes on to pray. That we would have a different response, a new one, the right one. It says in verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And how's that for a response to God's revelation? I don't even know all the ways that I've distrusted and rejected your word. I can't possibly even know all the ways that I've sinned against you. I I don't know it and I can't know it. The situation is so bad that the psalmist's request isn't even first, help me change. The psalmist's request is first for forgiveness. Forgiveness. I can't change. I'm stuck with sins that I don't even know. I'm not even aware of them all. There's a multitude of them. I'm not even aware of them all. I'm stuck with them. You're going to have to declare me innocent. Declare it. Because I never will be innocent in and of myself. That's not me. I will never have the right response to you and your word. Please forgive me and consider it as if I did have the right response to you and to your word. And it's a great prayer. David prays it because of what he knows about God, because God has revealed himself to be a God who forgives sins. Right alongside his declaring his name and his glory, he's the God who forgives. He's the God who forgives sins like this. Even though we distrust and reject him and his word, he has continually, throughout the history of the world, condescended to reveal himself to us for a relationship with him through his works in creation, through his words spoken by the prophets, and then finally through the ultimate revelation of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He keeps on making himself known to us. His son Jesus came into the world to show us what God is like. His son Jesus came into the world to live out the human response to that as it should be. To live out the response to God that we've failed to have in order to reconcile us to the one that we've distrusted, that we've rejected, that we've sinned against. So the reality of Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God, the very word of God himself in the flesh, the reality of Jesus begs the question, what kind of God sends a son like that? That's a great question to ask. What kind of God would send his beloved son Jesus into the world? It's one who will make himself known. Absolutely. He will make himself known for relationship. It's the kind of God who will forgive sins. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. It's the kind of God who wants you to respond to him with love and trust and obedience and delight. It's the kind of God who will even provide you the ability to do that because you can't muster it up on on your own. He'll provide you the ability to respond to him and to his revelation in a good way. So when his son Jesus died on the cross to forgive our wrong response to God's word, it revealed God most fully and at that moment... When we saw God most clearly, we were also declared innocent, as the psalmist prays here. Declare me innocent. 
And that happened through the death of Jesus Christ. And now, the risen Lord Jesus has granted us God's Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit, who definitely wants to make God known to us. That's his job description in the Scriptures, to make God known to us and to help us with our response to him. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. That's what he does. That's what he was sent for. And that's why you have it. To make God known to you and to help you with your response to that. So it's because of this God, it's because of this Savior Jesus Christ, because of this Holy Spirit, we can pray this prayer, asking God to, to forgive us, and asking God to change us, actually now, to keep us from our own deliberate, willful, presumptuous sins, sins where we actually really mean it, to keep us from that, to make us blameless in our response to God's revelation so that now the response of our whole being, the words, the thoughts that come from us, that they would be good and right according to God's goodness itself. And this is the work that only, that only God can do, the, the change that only he can make, which is why it's a prayer. It's a prayer, not just a profession of my undying devotion. It's a prayer. I can't fix the problem of my sin. I can't fix my heart's response to you. Please, Lord, you have to be the one to do it. That's the prayer that he teaches us to pray. And that begs the question, what kind of God teaches us to pray this way? What kind of God teaches us to pray this way? That's a great question to ask. It's the kind of God who loves to answer this kind of prayer. That's what he does. That's what he's signed up for with people like you and me. God has revealed himself, and God has provided us with a new response to him. And he'll provide you with that new response when you pray this way. He's the one who answers this prayer in Jesus Christ because he is our rock and our redeemer, the one who fixes us, makes us, uh, makes us right like we should be. The heavens declare the glory of this God, the law and all the facets of his word, everything that he says, make him known to us, the way that he instructs us to pray, even that says something about him. And his ultimate revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, our Savior, is most wonderful at all, so uh, <clears throat> most wonderful of all. So make it your own prayer so that you would see him, that you would delight in everything that he has done, everything that he's said, because he has done it, because he has said it, because he has revealed himself to you through it, and that's the best thing of all. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've taught us how to pray, that your son came into the world um, to rightly pray on our behalf all things and to lead us in prayers, prayers like this, so that we could know that you truly are worthy of all praise for who you are, what you've done, what you've said, the way that you've revealed yourself in the world. You're, you're worthy of all praise, and in spite of the fact that we've responded to you horribly uh, in all of our sin and unbelief and our rebellion against you, nevertheless, you've continued to make yourself known to us as a gracious Savior, a loving God, one who wants to catch us up into everlasting communion with yourself, that you've uh, done everything necessary to make this possible through Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, and that you've given us your own spirit so that we can have your relationship 
uh, with, with, uh, we can have Christ's relationship with you in us and uh, driving us and lighting up all of our lives. We thank you that this Holy Spirit makes us new creation in Christ. And we pray for you to do this great work more and more in us, that you would make us, um, you would make us pure, that you would make us innocent, that you would uh, not only declare us innocent of all transgressions, but change our lives so that we would no longer respond to you poorly, that we would respond to you with faith, hope, and love, and obedience. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.